and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the interesting, often scandalous, darker side of history and to show you perhaps a side of Washington, D.C. you don't know. Uh, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we're we're the Rebecca's. And it is April Fool's Day when this episode drops. It is a day I hate because normally in normal times, I'm leading school tours on April Fool's Day with eighth graders who think it's just hilarious and the funniest holiday ever. So I have come to dread April Fool's Day, but because of everything happening right now, April Fool's Day won't be surrounded by teenagers and we are in the midst of cherry blossom season. So it's kind of a win-win. April Fool's Day has already always been a very big day in my family. It's my stepbrother's birthday, and I won't say how old he is. And it's the day that my mom and stepdad got married. That's sweet. So, yes, it's a big day for our family. But in the recent years, I have, as Becca has been, leading eighth graders around, which is less fun. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to all the teachers out there who are with students on April Fool's Day all day, every year. Yes. So we really uh, debated what we would do for April Fool's Day because we wanted something fun and we wanted somebody who's a bit of a fool, (laughs) but also ripe with history. And we decided on somebody that we have teased out so many times in this pod. I can't believe we haven't done it yet, and we're really excited. But before we jump in, we just want to remind you guys, we are still running our patron promo. So thanks to our wonderful supporters on Patreon, we are able to do this podcast and able to sort of keep the business of tour guiding going, essentially, during this time where tourism is still really impacted by the pandemic So our patrons are huge and we just want to say a big thank you to them, but we are trying to kind of increase our patron number and we're really close to our goal for patrons that would allow us to keep this podcast going indefinitely. So if we can reach our patron goal by the end of spring, we will record for you a special bonus series on first ladies and you, if you are a patron, will get to vote and help decide which first ladies we talk about. And our hope is to really talk about some first ladies that are a little lesser known and really show you a side of history that you may not know. Yes. I'm very excited. Please help us talk about first ladies because there's a bunch of really cool ones and I'm excited about it. And we have patrons at all levels for as little as $3 a month. You can be a patron, but also um, if you are a patron at various levels, there's a lot of really cool bonuses. You can get books, you can get special discounts, you can get virtual or in-person tours as a patron. And honestly, those are priced even less than what it would be if you were just booking a tour with us regularly. So something to consider as the weather's getting nicer, if you're in the DC area, you can be a patron and get a tour and help us do the First Lady series. It's a win-win, win-win win. It really is. (laughs) All right, Rebecca. So April Fool's Day, the day of fools, who shall we discuss today? (laughs) Rebecca's going to laugh the whole time. (laughs) With glee. With glee. Yes, this is so great. This is um, one of my favorite stories to tell literally ever. Uh, And we're going to talk about Daniel Sickles. Daniel Edgar Sickles. Daniel Edgar Sickles, yes. Daniel Edgar Sickles. It's just a great name. Everything about him is extra. So let's just start there. Like, this is, (laughs) there is no part of this story where you're going to say, oh, wow. And then he lives some like normal years. No. There are no normal years. Dan Sickles lived 90 really extraordinary and action-packed years. Like, there's probably a few years when he was in kindergarten. But after that, it's all been like crazy town. (laughs) So Dan Sickles is from New York and we'll just dive right in here. He wanted to be a lawyer and he wanted to be in politics and he was pretty good at it. He made sort of a meteoric rise as a politician. And um, he also like just from the get-go, he lies about his birth year for reasons that are going to become apparent in a minute. So he's like a hot mess and he is sort of rising in New York. It probably goes without saying but let me just say it. He also comes from money, which just enables him to be a hot mess Yes, because he's born into wealth, which means he's going to get into a good college. He'll go to what becomes New York university, NYU. He's going to basically be funded to take the bar. He'll be funded to set up a law firm. He'll be funded to get into politics. So he doesn't have to do any of this with any talent of his own or any particular skill. 
Um, the only skill he has, I think, is charm. He's very charming. You know, men enjoy partying with him. And as you said, he's a ladies' man and ladies are drawn to him. Oh, yeah. And because he is, you know, cagey about his age, he kind of has a wonderkind vibe, right? Because yes. he he's always saying he's younger than he is. And so it seems impressive. Like, what a young man to have achieved yes. so much. But to be fair, he it's it's mostly paid for. It's purchased yeah he it's mostly purchased he's uh, he's born in 1819 as best we can tell he is going to claim to have been born as late as 1825 so he's going to shave as much as six years off of his age yeah he um right from the start dan sickles gets into politics he gets elected to the new york state assembly in 1847 so he's going to really very quickly establish himself as kind of the guy to know. They called him like when one of the things I read called him part of the Tammany Hall machine, which I feel like is a little later than this. Like Tammany Hall in my view is leader in the century. Am I wrong about that? Tammany's not my expertise. He's connected. And we, I guess it's a little bit of a spoiler. Daniel Sickles lives a really long time. And so he is connected to many of the politicians who will become really key to Tammany Hall. But I think it's a bit of a stretch to say his career personally, I don't think is part of that machine. He's just benefiting from many of those things that will become part of the Tammany Hall machine, which is sort of merging politics and money and political alliances. And he clearly has something about him because he's got a reputation pretty quickly for being kind of a mover and a shaker. He knows the right people. He's able to get stuff through committee and onto the floor and he gets bills passed. Like he knows how to play the game, work the angle. Like he's very much just this side of shady, um, knows all, you know, the right stuff, how to grease the wheels in politics, which is a good skill to have. And he's also, like Becca mentioned, very much has a reputation as a ladies' man. Yeah. Which is fine. He's single, whatever. Dude's got to do what a dude's got to do. And then he's not single anymore. When he turns 31-ish. 32, 33, most likely. (laughs) He falls stupid in love, crazy, out of control, madly in love with a woman named Teresa Bajoli. And Teresa Bajoli is apparently very beautiful and very cultured and very much 15. And she falls in love with him back. Like she's supposed to be intelligent, but clearly not that intelligent because she like really loves But I don't know. You're a teenage girl. There's this dashing, Mm. you know, successful man. Yes courting after you hard I I can sort of under I mean you know it's so icky to us but you can see where she falls so quickly he should theoretically be the one with a little bit more sense yes and to her parents credit they are not thrilled by the attention that she is getting from Daniel oh her parents are not thrilled and they try to like warn her but you know you can't tell kids anything and God knows the marrying age back then was like 12 or something obscene and so the day she turns 16 they like elope and the marriage goes exactly as badly as you think it's going to given how we've set up dan sickles dan sickles does not seem to think that being married should stop his womanizing ways and very soon after his marriage he's going to be censured which is officially reprimanded by the New York State Assembly for bringing a quote, known prostitute onto the floor of the New York State House. So it's bring your prostitute girlfriend to work day at the New York State House, (laughs) which I love. Which as you can imagine is a considerable humiliation to his new bride. Like the honeymoon is barely over, his marital bed is not yet cold and he's consorting with a prostitute. And not just in the dead of night, the way that somewhat respectable quote unquote men would have done it. He's not slinking off and doing this under a cloak of secrecy. He's literally bringing it in broad daylight to to Albany, to the center of political New York. And it's so embarrassing. It's such a, I, I think such an insult to her. And I feel like so many women, Teresa Sickles expected fidelity and if not fidelity, then discretion. And she ended up getting neither of those things. And this prostitute, he is seen in her company many times. And by seen, I do mean arrested. 
good times. Her name, he, she had the prostitute has the inescapably excellent name of Fanny White, which is just amazing. <laughs> Him and Fanny White, he goes as part of the president's mission to Great Britain. And so this is 1853. He'll be he'll be traveling. I mean, like with the president, with important people. <laughs> And he's going to leave, first of all, he leaves behind his pregnant wife, which I can kind of understand. It's a long voyage. You never know what's going to happen. It's not safe. I mean, it was so dangerous giving birth back then to put, because she was very pregnant at the point he departs because she gives, uh, she gives birth while he's gone. Yes. So he misses the birth of his first child, first and only child. This is also like, the timeline here is very quick. They get married. She's pregnant almost immediately. And then he's appointed to go overseas on this mission. And so he brings with him his prostitute girlfriend. Now, obviously a politician, a rising star, can't travel openly in the company of a known prostitute. So Dan Sickles is going to put her in a different cabin under an assumed name. And in case you were thinking there might be some redeeming qualities to Dan Sickles, the assumed name that he gives his prostitute girlfriend while she's traveling with him overseas while his wife is about to give birth at home, the assumed name he gives her is the name of his political rival in New York. (laughs) So it's all garbage. It's so great. So he clearly has questionable morality. And so obviously what better place for this man than the United States Congress? Naturally, naturally, he'll be elected to Congress. There's really just no question. Right. And he's he's chummy with the right people. He's chummy with people like James Buchanan. He's chummy with other sort of Democrats in Washington, D.C. at the time. So, you know, and he's popular in New York politics because he is he's got that charm. And I think what he's doing is not so different from what a lot of men in politics are doing at that time. He's just doing it so blatantly and men like that. They like that about him. They like his brazenness. Um, This is something we see in politics over and over and over again. Every era has, I think, a figure like this. And Sickles is that 19th century version of it. Mm -hmm. And he's also pretty young, even accounting for him lying about his age. He's still not even near 40 at this point. I mean, he think he's telling people he's much younger than that, but he gets elected to Congress in 18... Well, he takes office in 1857. And so he brings his newly long-suffering wife and their daughter named Laura to Washington with him. And very quickly, he's up to his old tricks. He (laughs) knows the right people. He gets on the right committees. He's greasing wheels and kissing babies and doing all like politicky stuff. And to sort of underscore his status as a rising star, he and Teresa are going to get a house on Lafayette Square, which is on the north side of the White House. Today, like at this moment, unfortunately, Lafayette Square is completely closed off. But even in the normal times, no one lives around Lafayette Square. It is now private foundations and things, security and things like that. And offices, executive offices, executive branch offices. Right. But back then, it was, the square was surrounded on three sides by townhouses. And this was a very money address. This is where you lived if you wanted to be someone or were somebody and wanted like upward mobility. This is like cabinet members are living in Lafayette Square Park. Proximity to power is a big deal. And so him and Teresa move to this lovely townhouse. And actually, against all the odds, Teresa actually flourishes in Washington, too. She becomes a very celebrated society hostess. And, you know, she knows the right people. She hangs out with the congressional wives and... She was certainly well-educated. She was musical. She could play musical instruments. She spoke a couple languages. And so you can imagine, this is a couple living within steps of the White House, hosting receptions Mm -hmm. and dinners and balls. And he's charming and she's beautiful and still very Mm -hmm. young. Um, She's she's like 18 or 19 when they get there and she's in her early 20s as he's taking office. And so it's like, she's still really, really young, but they do, they kind of charm Washington as a couple in their own way. Yes. And they become very much a power couple, except that they can't stand the side of each other, which actually is very much like a power couple. It's very Washington. Very Washington. (laughs) And he's up to his old tricks with the ladies too. We don't want to forget that. In D.C., I should say, too, it's always been a small town. It's still really more like a small town today than a big city. But this is pre-Civil War. 
DC is a small town. So whatever Daniel Sickles is getting up to is not a secret. Any, any little bit of gossip, especially in these circles, is passing very, very quickly. There is very, even if you're trying to keep a secret, it's very hard to keep a secret in pre-Civil War Washington because everybody knows everybody and the town's only this big. And if you can't see me because you're listening, it's not very big. And I can only imagine like, there are probably plenty of people who are very eager to tell Teresa Sickles exactly what her husband is up to. I can only imagine like going into a tea with fancy ladies and having the conversation stop because obviously they're whispering about your husband. Like I can just, it seems like that kind of a, a experience for her, but she's, you know, doing her job. She's furthering her husband's political ambitions. And as they're in Washington, in their social circle, they meet a man named Philip Barton Key. And Becca, do you want to give us the background on Philip Key? Sure. So Philip Barton Key, the name may not ring a huge bell for our listeners. That's okay. You probably heard of his father, Francis Scott Key. Uh, Francis Scott Key was a lawyer who's most famous for sort of being held prisoner briefly during the War of 1812 on a ship uh, outside of Fort McHenry. He witnesses the bombardment of Fort McHenry. And as he notes at the end of this bombardment, our flag was still there. And so Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner, a poem which we set to the tune of a British drinking song and made our national anthem. So Philip Barton Key comes from a very well-known Washington, D.C. area family. In addition to that, he's also kind of similarly to Daniel Sickles, young, ambitious, uh, said to be a little bit of a cad, um, also a little bit of a charmer. uh, And he's sort of running around Washington, D.C., having a good time as well. But he's done very well in his career. He's made himself district attorney which he is a pretty good position. He's DA of the District of Columbia. So he's got himself a little political appointment. So they're going to um, meet the Sickles, Sickleses and Philip Barton Key, and they're all going to hit it off. Yes, and it, it should be mentioned, and I like to emphasis on my, emphasize this on my tours, Philip Key is a widower with four little kids. And he is considered, and this is the really critical part, he's considered to be the most handsome and eligible bachelor in Washington, D.C. So just put that in your cap and think about that for a minute. Yes, this is going exactly the direction you think it is. There's a 100% chance. I will also note that when they first meet him, he's not a widower yet. Ah, And so he becomes widowed during a time where he already has a friendship with the Sickles. Mm. And then he goes through this tragedy. Which brings them closer together. Yeah, and it just brings him closer to his friends, particularly Teresa, who at this point uh, is in her early 20s, in a marriage where her husband pays no attention to her and could care less about what she's doing and and has not given her the respect of some discretion in his activities. And then you have this handsome man, Philip Barton Key, who goes through this terrible tragedy, who is heartbroken over the loss of his wife, caring for these four young children. And he is educated and sophisticated and he likes theater and opera and art and music. And he likes, he's interested in what Teresa has to say and what she thinks about things. And you can understand why the two of them are going to begin an affair. Oh yeah. This is a hot, hot, hot affair, you guys. Like, it's a thing. Yeah, it is. Um, it's, it's. you know, this is not just an emotional affair. As she you. would say later, they engage in intimacy of an improper kind. And she says, I did what is usual for a wicked woman to do. I love it so much. Yeah, girl. <laughs> Get it. And it's it quickly becomes an open secret in Washington. It is the hot goss of the 1850s. They are noted. I mean, people who aren't even like trying to stir up trouble, if you go back and look at letters, people would say, Teresa Sickles was at the opera with Philip Barton Key. They were at this reception together. They were, I mean, they were doing things together in a way that people notice. Yes. <laughs> like well, she's always out with this one guy and never out with her husband. I feel like they're their thought process might have been well if we're seen in public a lot 
together. It won't raise. Well, raise an eyebrow because we're not trying to hide it. But they really were not trying to hide it. They are seen everywhere. And her husband approves. Her husband's friends with Philip Burton Key. They hang out. And so everybody just assumes that this is sort of the arrangement that's going on. Philip Burton Key and Teresa Sickles are eventually going to rent a room in sort of a dodgy part of town so that they can have their intimate afternoons together. This is a thing. It goes on for well over a year and is talked about like crazy, but her husband doesn't really seem to know. And that's the critical part. Like he knows that they're friends with Philip Key. He knows Philip Key himself, but he doesn't believe all this slanderous talk. It doesn't really reach him. Dan Sickles seems to have had a big temper, as you can imagine he might. And so people are worried to tell him because they're worried he'll literally shoot the messenger. And so he's kind of in the dark. Until. Until. (laughs) February 24th, 1859. Oh my goodness. He comes home from work and there's a anonymous poison pen letter waiting for him. Someone who doesn't want to be named or shot tells him all about the fact that Teresa Sickles is like, doing the deed with Philip Key and it's been going on for a while. My favorite part of the letter is he definitely blows the cover off their secret rendezvous spot, but then basically says, with these few hints, I leave the rest for you to imagine. So basically this person doesn't even have the guts to put it all out there. It's just like, I'll let you figure out what's going on, which is kind of coward. I mean, it's already cowardly, the anonymous letter. Um, also, the letter would be turned over eventually to Harper's Bazaar and printed. So this le- this anonymous letter, Daniel Sickles will later turn over to the press, which tells you everything you need to know about Daniel Sickles. I know, so good. So he confronts his wife. They have a tearful scene she at first tries to deny it but that doesn't last long when you have to imagine too i mean he does have a temper he does and you know i can't even imagine how Teresa to have to confront with that i mean i i think that it could have potentially gone very dangerously for Teresa. yes um and so i'm not surprised she confesses i'm not surprised he makes her write it down and put it in writing that's my favorite which, part about which is this. a very lawyerly thing to do yep. you know and he does have a background as a lawyer but like how scary that must have been too because there have been plenty of men who've killed their wives over less yeah oh yeah and he forces her to write a five-page confession lawyer and she does and he like detailing all manner of details about this affair and in particular what Dan Sigels is interested in is the signal now we have cell phones today so you just get a burner phone and technology makes things easier but they did not obviously have that option in the 1850s so if you're conducting an illicit affair it's not like Philip Key can come to their door every day when he wants you know a little something something they have to have a signal so that they're not really seen together and the signal, friends, the signal is this. When he's feeling in the mood, Philip Key will go for a walk around Lafayette Square, like so many people do. It's nice. View the White House. Wave to all the ladies in the mansions. When he gets by the Sickles household, which sadly no longer exists, he's going to take out a white handkerchief and wave it around at his side. And that's the signal. If Teresa can get away without being noticed, They go off to this room that they've rented and spend their afternoon. Where he leaves a string with a key hanging, uh, leaves the door unlocked, and there's a piece of string hanging as a little signal, too. So, like, they had all these little clandestine. Oh, yeah. They put a lot of work into the affair, is what I'm saying. They clearly did put a lot of work into this. And so Sickles now knows the signal, though. He knows that Philip Barton Key will be waving this white handkerchief and he's got nothing better to do because he puts very little time into his actual work. Right. So now armed with this information, Dan Sickles is going to spend the next few days not sleeping, barely eating, not really leaving the front window of his home. He will basically keep a watch on Lafayette Square. He's stalking for him. Stalking for days. And then a few days later, he is rewarded. Philip Key goes for a walk. And you really got to feel for Philip Key in this moment. Like, yeah, he's doing the nasty with somebody else's wife. But in this particular day, like all he really wants is a nice walk and to maybe meet up with his lady love. And it seems that he really was in love with Teresa Sickles. He seems to have been very devoted. The white handkerchief comes out. 
And then so does Dan Sickles. Dan Sickles comes running out of his townhouse in broad daylight, brandishing a pistol and yelling at Philip Key about how Philip Key has defiled his marriage bed. Sickles has two single barrel Derringers and a revolver. So all things said and done, he's brought three guns because back then you did not have a lot of arms that would do multi-firing. So he clearly intends to shoot more than once or he needs the opportunity to shoot more than once. And he is going to come out. He's screaming, you have dishonored my home and family. And he kind of puts his hand out with the pistol Philip Barton Key sees a guy he knows putting his hand out. He thinks he's coming to shake his hands. And then all of a sudden there's this gun. And Philip Barton Key is unarmed because he's just going for a walk. And so he pulls out the only thing he has on him, opera glasses. (laughs) And he throws the opera glasses at Daniel Sickles. And Sickles is going to start firing. Um, and it's going to be three shots. So there's just, there's no no coming back from that for Philip Barton Key. Um, he is going to die pretty much instantly at the scene. It is, and this is a this is broad daylight. This is like two o'clock in the afternoon. It is a nice day. We're right near the White House. There's a lot of people around. And for like, if you've ever been to Lafayette Square for any locals, this actually takes place right where the statue of Lafayette is today, like right in that particular corner. And we are across the street from the White House. Like this is where we're we're at here. I love this detail. Dan Sickles shoots Philip Key uh, once in the chest, which is probably what killed him. But the second shot is in the groin. So in case you missed it, Dan Sickles is really upset. How dare this woman usurp the manly privilege of infidelity? Uh, And so he's just really pissed off. Philip Key dies almost mercifully, I think, at that point. And Dan Sickles walks away, (laughs) walks to the attorney general's house, which is a few blocks over, (laughs) turns himself in, surrenders the murder weapon, and writes and signs a full confession. He actually will write down that he is proud to have rid the women of Washington of the menace of Philip Barton Key. So it was really doing it as a public service. It was, you know, to help others. I love that Daniel Sickles actually consented to multiple interviews while jailed, including one with the New York Tribune. And he said, Philip Barton Key has dishonored me and we could not live together on the same planet. Which is not even like I couldn't bear to live in the same city as him or I didn't want him near me. It was I could not live together on the same planet. We needed to eat this guy into the sun. Like just... Just done. (laughs) And here's the thing, though. Daniel Sickles has confessed. He has admitted to this. He has expressed no remorse. He believes that he is the victim here, but he has no intention of going into a courtroom, pleading guilty and getting sent to jail. That is not he's a lawyer. He understands if he pleads guilty, the judge is going to pass a sentence. So he refuses to do that, even though he knows he did this. Um, So he is going to start using his connections to put together a top flight defense team. He's going to bring down lawyers from New York. He's going to talk to political allies and uh, political allies in Washington, D.C. are going to recommend a man that I am very fond of that I have done a whole podcast episode on. Edwin Stanton. Stanton in just a few years um, is going to become Lincoln's Secretary of War, become a really key player in the Union government during the Civil War. But at this point, Stanton is really best known for being one of the best legal minds of his era. And he really gets brought into this, most likely because James Buchanan, President of the United States, says you have to defend this guy. Because this is not a, this is not a cut and this is not the kind of case that I think Stanton would have taken normally because it isn't a guaranteed win. How are they going to talk their way out of this with a man who won't plead guilty when he confessed? Right, like there are there are many witnesses. He has a confession. He's given up the murder weapon. Like this is should be open and shut. And it also should be mentioned, Dan Sickles is in jail while he's awaiting trial because that's generally what happens when you are accused of killing people. But he gets. And again, I don't have Congre- the congressional treatment. <laughs> he gets the congressional treatment in jail. I'm not familiar with the criminal justice system, really, but it is not my understanding that men accused of murder get special food brought in. They get extra long visits with their lawyers. They get 
flowers and visits from friends and by friends I do mean women I mean again reporters coming to interview him while he is in jail he gets a note of support on the eve of his trial from the president himself and as you can imagine this trial is a sensation the press is salivating over this you've got murder you've got passion you've got two famous names or two notable names for sure in a murder across the street from the White House in cold blood over a clandestine affair. Like, come on, this is big doings. And so you have, you know, Edwin Stanton, this brilliant lawyer who is now getting the kind of political pressure of you need to go figure out a way to get this guy off for a crime he's committed. And you have all these New York lawyers who are like, we'll try anything, throw it at the wall, see what sticks. And what Stanton helps to craft is essentially a two-pronged defense. One, they basically say that he was justified in doing this. This is what any man would do. He was protecting his wife from this scoundrel. He was protecting his home, the sanctity of his marriage bed, all of that. So they sort of go with one aspect of this is that he's completely justified and Philip Barton Key deserved it. And then the second prong of this defense is a little different. It basically is that the infidelity of his wife, that this um, taking of their beautiful marriage and ripping it asunder has driven him temporarily insane, that he was insane, but only at the time of his shooting. And this is a new thing. Insanity has certainly been part of the legal system at this point, but using temporary insanity has never been done successfully in an American court of law by 1859. So it's, it's an unusual tactic because they're basically saying he knew what he was doing and he was justified in doing it, but also he was kind of temporarily crazy. So can you really hold him responsible? And frankly, isn't it kind of Teresa's fault? So that's sort of what the jury's hearing. And also that he's fine now. Like you can let him back out into society. Oh, yeah. he's, he's all okay now. Yeah. He's not a threat to anyone. This was no. a one time temporary yeah. thing. It's not like there are other men going to have affairs with Teresa. I mean, come on. And it's unfortunate though, because I think Teresa gets the short end of the stick in the trial. They're really going to lean on her, her confession to Sickles about the affair, all these details. And basically says, he put her on the road to the horrid filth that is common prostitution. And at one point the courtroom would applaud when Stanton described Sickles' motives as honorable and saying that the death of Key was a cheap sacrifice to save one mother from the horrible fate of defilement. And the her confession is actually ruled inadmissible. Like they try to get that introduced and the judge throws it out, but mysteriously it gets leaked to the press. So you can tell like they are trying to basically throw Teresa under the bus big time. And it works. This is the beautiful part. It works completely. Uh, they sell the jury on some combination of, of this defense and he's acquitted and Daniel Sickles walks out of the courtroom a free man back to his presumably super thrilled wife. And the judge basically says to the jury before they go to liberate, you need to consider that this man was probably insane at the time that he shot Key. So the judge is leaning very heavily on the jury by the time this is over. The jury took less than an hour to deliver this not guilty verdict. And it's, it's he's celebrated. <laughs> that's the thing that's so crazy to me. Daniel Sickles is celebrated when this trial is over. He's seen as a hero, he's beloved, people are so excited. It's Teresa who's really the villain. And there's a lot of people who are upset when it's clear that Daniel Sickles and Teresa are gonna remain married. Yes, there's a lot of people who blame her for this. They get nasty notes when it's clear that they're gonna reconcile. She's gonna withdraw from society after this because I would too, but she doesn't live that much longer after this. And she spends a lot of the rest of her life in seclusion. And so Philip Barton Key is the victim, obviously, but like so is Teresa Sickles in a very, very real way. She never really recovers from this. She dies at the age of 31, which is relatively young. So it's, yeah, I just, it's very, I feel an enormous amount of sadness for Teresa Sickles. Like one youthful mistake unfolds in this really terrible way for the rest of her life. 
And I would argue her youthful mistake was marrying Daniel Sickles. Oh, that's exactly where I was. Yeah. That's you know, what, this, that was what was in my mind is her youthful mistake. You know, she gets wrapped <laughs> up with this man and in this unhappy marriage and then makes the regrettable decision to have an affair. But again, the, the hypocrisy is so evident with the Sickles story that he seems to be free to do whatever he likes and be with whoever he likes and, and cat about town. But the minute she develops what seems to have been a, a pretty real relationship with Philip Barton Key, she is then vilified, a man loses his life, she's going to be basically, like you said, she's shunned out of society. So she goes from being someone who was really starting to blossom into this like confident young woman in DC, finding her way in society, and then it's just all of that ends, and she's left with this sham of a marriage, and nobody um, and it, it, it's really, really sad. And I'm always, you know, people always ask on tour, like what happens to her? And you have to be like, she dies at 31. She dies just after the civil war. And it doesn't seem to me that this was any way a hardship for Dan Sickles. Like it seems to me, and there's no, not a lot of evidence I could find, but it doesn't seem to me that this hurt him with his, with the ladies. Like he run, he's, he's done his political career at this point sort of transitions into the war because we're right at the edge of the civil war at this point. So he doesn't run for Congress again until many years after the civil war, but this does not hurt him in his prospects. And my favorite thing about this whole interlude is that you would expect that after this one sort of brief scandal, Dan Sickles would fade back into history and he does not. But no, no, that is really not his way. And really, this is, you know, this is a huge, it's a murder trial, it's a huge thing, but it's certainly not the first scandal of his life and it won't be the last. This is a man who cannot stay away from scandal. He can't stay away from controversy. Because the thing is, this murder happens in early 1859, which means that we are just on the brink of the Civil War. And when the Civil War begins, Sickles, who is not, an idiot, as it were, he's certainly savvy, sees the war as a way to repair his public image. Because now nobody's going to care about your past if you're a war hero, right? Nobody's going to care about that little incident where you killed the guy if you can say that you saved some lives. And so immediately when the war begins, he's like Mr. Gung-Ho Union out there raising money. He's out there like trying to recruit volunteers. And because he has so many political connections, he's going to get a commission. And this was not uncommon in the Civil War. I think today we think in general, like if you're given command of troops, it's because you have military experience. In the Civil War, that was really not the case. Sickles had a little bit of like military experience, but not anything extensive. But he's put in charge of troops, big troops, major troops. Yeah, he's given a commission to be um, a general, which is, you know, high up there, I think. And he fights, although he seems to conveniently miss several big battles for his unit like it's like oh I I guess I wasn't I I, took me a while to get there so I missed that uh second battle of Bull Run and I missed the battle of Williamsburg oops that happened but sort of the the man meets the moment at Gettysburg sort of and (laughs) It's complicated. There are whole scholars that do like, there's an entire podcast about the Battle of Gettysburg. Like literally they go inch by inch and it's really fascinating, but we're not going to do that. We're not. You, you can, you can listen to that. Listen to it. Basically. And the way I boil this down on my tours is this is very oversimplified, but basically in the heat of battle, Dan Sickles is given an order to take his troops and go in this direction. And he takes his troops and goes in the other direction which is disobeying a direct order for which you can get court-martialed. You can get removed from the military. But in going in the wrong direction, he is going to get him and his men into a tough scrape. And he does display bravery in the midst of this battle, a disaster completely of his own creation. But does his best to try to get get his men out alive. Yes. And he does, like, there is actual real bravery here. There's also some self-promotion later, but there's real bravery. And in the course of all of this, he's going to get shot in the leg. And he's actually, he is drawn on a stretcher out of battle. And while he is, he's puffing on a cigar, basically kind of cracking jokes to let his men know that it's all going to be okay. And this happens, I will say, on July 4th. So for me, when it comes to July 4th, I always remember Daniel Sickles and the cigar and this like cannonball that's like ripped through his leg. 
he's going to get the leg amputated that day, like immediately. There's no saving it. And he gets a very special visitor the next day because the day after his amputation, President Abraham Lincoln with his son, Tad, visits him in his, in his Washington, D.C. hospital. So he's transferred from the battlefield back to D.C. And like, that's how important Sickles is, despite everything, is like Lincoln comes to pay a personal visit. And he's one of the first people to make it back, because they didn't have Twitter back then. He's one of the first people to make it from the Battle of Gettysburg all the way back to Washington and provide some of the news of the battle. So in a very real way, he shapes, sort of starts to help shape the narrative about the Battle of Gettysburg. Lincoln and his son Tad visit him during his recuperation. Obviously he's only got one leg now, so his military career is effectively over, but he recovers and he, don he donates the leg to, the Army Medical Museum, where it is actually today. You can see it, well, in the normal times, it's still there. Today, the National Museum of Health and Medicine, just near Silver Spring, Maryland, which is actually one of my favorite hidden gems in the area. The whole museum is really fascinating, but you can see the leg bone and a cannonball and the cannonball that took it, took the leg. And Dan Sickles recovers, he has a depression for a while because, you know, he lost sure. a leg and that's rough. And then his wife dies, which they didn't really like each other, but what are you going to do? And he's going to advocate for himself, basically promote himself for decades to, because he thinks he deserves the Medal of Honor. And, you know, obviously he completely disobeyed orders and got his men into a tough scrape. So he... he obviously deserves the Medal of Honor. He is going to vilify George Meade, who's the general that sent him in the wrong direction. And there's a lot of years of sort of back and forth about the extent of what happened at Gettysburg. Dan Sickles benefits because he gets the last word. He lives a lot longer than most of the other guys he fights with. And so he's very active in veterans associations. He does raise a lot of money for veterans uh, and appears at every Gettysburg reunion that ever was and basically continues to tout his cause and talk about how great he was. And his basic talking point is, I, Daniel Edgar Sickles, won the Battle of Gettysburg for the Union. And thus, having won the Battle of Gettysburg, I should be credited with the Union winning the war. And George Meade is a no-good Nick who should be run out of town. I mean, Sickles is just like, I am the real hero. I think there's a part of his mind who thinks that he'll be able to follow like a Grant-esque path to the presidency by claiming to have been the hero of Gettysburg. And by kind of besmirching um, General George Meade. And it's kind of not to say, like you said, there's real bravery on display by, by all of these men. And Gettysburg is a four-day battle. There's so much that happens in this battle, right? And there are decisions made that are good decisions and not so good decisions and decisions that just seemed like a good decision in the moment. And of course, with historical kind of 2020, you can look and go, yeah, I wouldn't have gone that way. I wouldn't have moved troops there. But he really, like you said, because he lives so long, he is just going to paint this very specific picture of Gettysburg that really influences scholarship on mm. the subject up into the first half of the 20th century. Yep. Dan Sickles is going to really propel this narrative. This is the reason that George Gordon Meade doesn't get a lot of credit for Gettysburg, partly because Dan Sickles really beats this drum that George Gordon Meade's at fault, snatches defeat from the jaws of victory as far as Gettysburg is concerned. And Sickles really promotes the idea that he single-handedly won the whole battle, which is ludicrous. But um, it's really, he basically awards himself the Medal of Honor is essentially kind of what happens. He is going to run for Congress later on in life, like much later on in his like 70s, essentially to help make Gettysburg into a national military park. So that's like the only thing he does with his later term in Congress. Before that though, and this is perhaps my favorite detail of the later part of Dan Sickles' life, he is going to get appointed to a, to be the minister, sort of a military attache to the Spanish king. So he goes over to Spain for a while. While he's there, he does a few things. First of all, he actually does advise the king about military things. Second of all, he gets remarried. He marries in his late 50s, a much younger woman. Uh, they have a couple kids. And thirdly, he continues his reputation as a ladies' man. And at least according to him, now there's no secondary corroboration here, but at least according to him, while he is advising the king on military matters, he's having an affair with the queen. 
which is outstanding. He also, as a fourth thing, at one point tries to get the United States into another war. Sure. Taking in t- information from the Spanish court, sending it to Washington and kind of amping it up and saying that intelligence from Spain tells us that we should attack Great Britain again. So, I mean, he tries to get us to go to war because, you know, he benefited from the last war. Why not another one? Right, exactly. <laughs> like he's too old to fight at this point. Like he goes back to Congress in 1893. And at this point, he's like in his 70s. It's amazing to me. Dan Sickles just never says quit. Um, he is going to visit his leg regularly for the rest of his life. Whenever he's in Washington, he will like take the trip out to the Army Medical Museum and visit and like commune with his amputated <laughs> limb. <laughs> he is always available to scholars and newspaper reporters. He is going to receive the Medal, the um, Medal of Honor for his service at Gettysburg 35 years after the fact, though. So it takes a little while. But it's kind of almost timing wise, I think works out perfect for him because he gets the Medal of Honor 35 years later. Most everybody else who had been there is gone, his contemporaries at Mm -hmm. least. And so he is able to really play it up in the press and he's really able to sort of paint his own picture of what happened. So you see him in the 1890s and early 1900s because he's so involved with the preservation efforts Mm -hmm. of the battlefield of Gettysburg. You see him really sort of repainting his legacy. Oh, it's so great. And he dies in New York on the eve of the First World War. And by the eve of the First World War, I literally mean May of 1914. He lives from the Civil War to almost see the First World War, which is incredible to me and very <laughs> long-lived. He has a huge, he's 94 years old. He has a huge funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. There are pictures, it's a big thing. And then he's laid to rest and still remains at rest at Arlington National Cemetery today. And we will put a, we'll put a link to his gravesite for those of you who are local if you go out to Arlington, because um, it's sort of surprising to me. Sickles is so over the top, and yet he has very much just the sort of standard veterans marker. Um, He does have the gold lettering to uh, denote his Medal of Honor status, but you'd sort of imagine somebody like Sickles having this massive sort of gravesite, and yet that's the one place where modesty seems to have prevailed. And you also would imagine, I would imagine him being in a more prominent spot. Like he's not, he's not in a really, like the cemetery was configured differently in in 1914. There was a different entrance than there is now, but he's not in an area where a lot of people are going to be walking. So he doesn't get a lot of tourist traffic, which is unfortunate. I've only actually, I've been to Arlington like literally a thousand times. I've only seen his grave, maybe a handful. Can I tell a story (laughs) though about it? This is my, my little Dan Sigel story. So uh, every now and then the Arlington cemetery, the people who run it, they have historians there that are like insanely cool and very knowledgeable. And they put on these, talks and they'll take you around to prominent graves and I like to go to them because I'm a gigantic nerd and they know who I am they know I'm a tour guide and it like they're very serious you know military ex-military guys very knowledgeable very serious and we were once doing civil war a civil war tour we got to Dan Sickles grave and one of the guys looks at me he's like you want to take this one and I was like yes I do (laughs) so I got to talk about Dan Sickles it was very exciting (laughs) I love that. I do enjoy going out and seeing the leg. I try to go, if not on 4th of July, I try to go around 4th of July because you will usually bump into one or two other like nerds like us, civil, civil war nerds in particular. Um, it's such a great hidden gem. I yeah. really love it. He's just fascinating to me. He's such an incredible like f- historical figure, but also so much about him. I think is a great illustration about how, and we say this all the time on the podcast, the more things change, the more things stay, stay the same. All the self-promotion, all the, you know, the the affairs and the murder. I mean, all of these things are things that happen all the time uh, and happen over and over again in our history, so. I also would like to, the thing that I think about Dan Sigals is you can draw a through line from him and Teresa to Madeline Pollard and William Breckenridge. Like there's a direct connection between like the sort of, and we talk about this a lot with, cause we're big women's history scholars, but there's a through line between the morality with which Teresa is greeted with. And then just a few years later, and you can see sort of what Madeline Pollard was up against when she tries to sue this Congressman for breach of promise. And so it's really interesting to me that this is sort of the, the other lens of this is to sort of reflect how Teresa was treated and how he treated women generally. It was really um, 
Dan Sickles is not a hero for a lot of reasons, but this is that was a big one of them. Um, yeah. But he's <laughs> so fun. He's so fun to talk about. Um, I think he's kind of perfect for April Fools um, because the story is just so over the top and ridiculous. As always, we want to thank you guys for tuning in, listening to Tour Guide Tell All. Be sure to be checking out our show notes on our website because we do put some links to things, including we'll make sure to have a link to the leg uh, as well as his gravesite and some other good resources. I will shout out if you like uh, what we talked about, Daniel Sickles, and you want to dig in a little deeper, I would highly recommend American Scoundrel by Thomas Kinley. That is I think one of the best histories of Sickles in terms of not being afraid to have fun with the story, but also really digging in to newspaper, magazines, letters, because there's so much rumor and innuendo about Sickles out there that his you don't need to embellish. And Kinali does a good job of, of having a well-researched while still being really juicy book. Yes, it's a very good. It's been on my shelf for a while. I yeah, mean. yeah. Uh, this is uh, this was gifted to me actually by a good friend of ours, Chris. I got that's Chris, where I got it from. Chris is listening. I think we I, love you. I feel like he had two copies, and that's why I got one. But yeah. I can't remember now if that was why. Um, before before he left us for California. Uh, so as always, thank you guys so much for listening. We're huge fans of all of our listeners. If you have any ideas, you want to pitch the pod, um, be sure to follow us at Tour Guide Tell All on Instagram and Facebook, at Tour Guide Tell on Twitter, and you can email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. Please, we're putting together our summer schedule. Um, so feel free if you if there's something that you really want to hear about. We want to uh, get that going for you. So pitch the pod. We love to get suggestions and uh, thank you guys so very much. Happy April fool's day. And we'll be back at you next week. We'll be back. Thank you guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin, Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time, 